We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If I ventured in the slipstream This episode of Inside Golf Podcast is brought to you by RickRenGood.com. All of the stats, tools, and info that I will be discussing on this podcast can be found over at RickRenGood.com. My guest this week, who plays DraftKings for a living, he uses RickRenGood.com. Pretty much every great DraftKings player I know uses it. It is the largest fantasy and betting-focused statistical database on the internet. We have ownership projections. We have Euro Tour, Euro Tour data, Corn Ferry Tour data, Live data, Model Generator, Lineup Builders, not to mention my three premium articles, premium Slack channel where you can reach me for any questions. So head on over to rickrengood.com, promo code Andy, that is the important part if you want to help me out, and we would love to have you as part of the team. All right, coming up on this podcast, uh, a heavily requested guest, I convinced DFS Jesse, downside of me on Twitter, uh, to finally come on a podcast. And I interview him on basically how he got started, uh, his philosophy on DraftKings, what he finds to be the sports with the biggest edges, Twitter, his process, uh, and a whole lot more. Finally, at the end, we do a lot of John Deere stuff uh, at the end as well. So this is a fun one. Uh, and I hope you enjoy it just as much as we did. All right, let's bring on Jesse. All right, Jesse's here. Downside of me on Twitter. This is your first time coming on a podcast. Took a fair amount of convincing to get you on. The selling point was talking about the random losers at the John Deere, which we'll get to. But I want to give people a bit of background. First, you play DraftKings. I don't know if you what you would consider your title to be, but you play DraftKings for a living. You do not do any content. I don't even know if you consume any content outside of mine, maybe, Flax. But you are as entrenched in this world as anyone. So how did this come to be? How did you choose this life? Maybe it chose you, but uh, but how did we get here? Yeah, so I've always been into gambling. like even before I legally could, like my dad got me into poker at like a really young age. I wasn't like old enough to play during the poker boom, but I was still like playing just like free money or whatever on, on different poker sites. And I always kind of had an interest for that. 
always kind of had an interest for sports, of course. But I, ne- I didn't really put the two together for a while. Like draft, DraftKings and DFS as a whole was out for a long time before I really got involved in it. I actually got involved with DFS, not through DraftKings at all. Uh, I didn't know of it as DFS at the time, but they had League of Legends, which I don't know if anyone that listens to this knows what, even what that is. But they had League of Legends DFS on a few sites that don't run anymore. Uh, Alpha Draft and Vulcan. I deposited like a couple hundred dollars on there one time, made my teams, completely forgot about, and I just opened the site again like a month later, and I'd like set them up for the first week of games, and my balance was like went from 200 to like $5,000. Like I ended up shipping like whatever contests I entered that day. So from there, I kind of got started with that. Those sites eventually went down, and I kind of just was in like no man's land for a while with, with uh, DFS as a whole. And then I found DraftKings probably in like 2015, 2016, just played it casually until I met some guys on Reddit that eventually got into a Discord together. It was like a big thing, the big Reddit DFS sports Discord. Slowly it, started learning from some of those guys. Go ahead. This was all prior to Twitter. Were you on Twitter at this point or no? No, I was not on Twitter really at all. I don't know when I joined. I mean, I had a Twitter account, but I wasn't like, tw- like it wasn't, it was a different account. It wasn't like tweeting or anything really, just like on there go on there like once every couple of days or go on there for news and stuff like that. Like definitely not like, like I'm like terminally online at this point, like all day, all the time. (laughs) But yeah, so that was, that was most of that was before I was even on Twitter, but yeah, those guys in the DFS sports discord helped me out. And I slowly started learning from them. There's a couple of guys in there that are really big names in DFS or one of them's kind of, he's kind of taking a little bit of a break now, but there's like a nil prow 88. I don't know if anyone's heard of him. I'm sure some people have for sure. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Broflex, Baranosaurus Flex, him. There's some other guys in there and they kind of listening to them and some other people kind of got me going and put me in the right direction. And I just started grinding more and more and more learning from them and eventually built up to, to where I am now. What was your first sport? Did you start to play all sports at the beginning or did you have an entry point with one sport and then somehow you found your way into golf? Yeah, I think basketball was probably the first one that I played. It's definitely the first one I can remember winning like a significant amount of money in. So I, I'm guessing that's the first one I got into. Um, and then from there, a lot of the guys that were in that Discord were really good at baseball. And that's how I got into baseball. I didn't even really like like baseball at that point in time. I was basketball, football only. That's all I watched. That's all I played. Whatever. I mean, baseball is not really that popular where I am. So you can understand why I wouldn't be into it. And hockey isn't really that big to play on DraftKings, so it wasn't really a focus of mine either um so i got into baseball through them and then eventually that led to golf which was kind of the same as baseball where i hadn't really played golf in my life maybe a couple times they had like a nine hole course at a lake that I, my grandparents had a cabinet so i played golf there a few times but like other than that like no interest in golf prior to dfs or gambling but i mean i'm in the weeds now i don't I don't play a ton. I'm horrible at it. Like if I can break a hundred, that's like a miracle, but, but I have fun with it. So did you basically, you know, for example, for me, I found golf, I found golf DFS through playing golf my entire life and being obsessed with golf. And I started playing DFS and basically started this podcast when I realized that I might have a bit of an edge based on my understanding and knowledge of architecture. For you, 
would you consider yourself a sports fan? Like, have you always loved and watched sports or did you kind of find DFS through the alleyway of, oh, this is something that I might have an edge in. I understand gambling. I understand game theory. I can apply it to sports and that's how you got here. Or would you, would you, I guess what I'm asking is, would you consider yourself a sports fan first or more of on the data and analytics I know how to build models. I understand game theory and I'm able to apply that to sports. Yeah, I think my answer would probably be surprising given like just how I talk and stuff normally, but I'm really, I would say I'm a sports fan first, but I would also say gambling on sports over the years has definitely like in a way like kind of tarnished my love for sports too. Like you you almost see everything through the lens of gambling or like not everyone is like that, but that's kind of how I am now where it's like- You become very cynical. Yeah, and it takes away a lot of the enjoyment and like the like sort of like the casual nature of watching sports and being invested in your team. It's like you can't you're you're invested in your team, but like you want to see some guy on the other team light them up for 40 points that night. And you're like, well, which one am I going to be more happy about? Like, who cares if they win this random game? I'd rather win money at this point. Like when money is the priority, it kind of sucks the enjoyment out of the sports itself. So it's kind of. I mean, as good as everything has been to me DFS wise at the same time, I can definitely tell that it's taken some of my joy for sports away from me as well, which is kind of a downside of it. And speaking of taking the joy out of things, how did you get involved with Twitter? How did, cause I, I didn't even know that's interesting to me is, is Reddit DFS still a thriving community? Is there a big DFS scene on Reddit? That's a pretty good question. Like I haven't really, once we started the discord, well, I, I shouldn't say we, I didn't start the discord, but once the discord kind of, uh, got going, most of the people migrated from Reddit to the discord. And from then, I don't know how successful or how huge it was. It was like really crazy. Like there would be active threads where they're like on like a random NBA day and there'd be like two, 300 comments. All the guys would be in there discussing and stuff every day, all the plays, like talking, like, just strategy and everything. It was actually pretty wild for a time, but then we all kind of moved on to Discord. It was like a little bit easier because it was more instant than Reddit with commenting and stuff. And Twitter, um, right? Like I would imagine because, you know, I'm curious if you think that with how saturated the market has become and how Twitter has become a bit of this cesspool of content and discussion regarding DFS. Do you find it to be an essential tool? Like, do you do you think it's necessary to be at least looking at Twitter to get a sense of ownership and where certain people are going this week? Or do you basically a lot of your account, mine as well, is parody, clearly, right? Like it's it, you're not really treating Twitter as a very serious news source. You're treating it more as a fun, sometimes fun, uh, discussion point platform to fuck around and fuck around with people and, you know, talk DraftKings and such. But how did, how did the Twitter thing start for you and how does it play into your process, if at all, when it comes to DraftKings? Yeah. So I uh, probably just got onto Twitter just for news and information and stuff like that. Like I can't say I necessarily use it to like see how everyone's thinking or whatever. I mostly just go on there to shit post and troll people. 
Um, and they just are, happen to be like DFS adjacent people because that's where all the people that I met when I got onto Twitter. And then it kind of just spiraled from there. Where I, and it actually kind of surprises me to this day that I have like 4,500 followers. I literally post nothing of value on Twitter at all. I make people mad with probably over half my tweets. And then the other half of them is just me like complaining about stuff that really I'm not even that upset about. It's just like kind of humorous. And instead of just sitting there bottling it up, I just let it fly on Twitter and and that that's just how it is. I don't know. Like I just it just like lets me let off a little steam, but it's really not that serious, despite like usually someone taking it serious every day. Do you so do you ever listen to I'm start I want to start to transition us into talking a little bit about your process as much as you'll share, of course. But okay. do you ever listen to content or like i said look at what people are saying on twitter and use that as okay this is this is valuable information in terms of ownership or do you operate completely in your own realm and are kind of steadfast in your own process and you don't want to hear what other people are saying you don't need to know like you trust your own process and that's what you go with every single week yeah, well, one thing I, I can actually give you a plug because I used to it used to be hard because I would always try and build a model with uh, like course information and that kind of stuff, and I it was hard, I sometimes had a hard time finding a good place for that. So your articles, I actually like do unironically use those articles to help build out my model every week. It's like the most for me the most like clear place that shows everything distance like green. Sometimes it's hard to find green information. Like I had to search like extra hard for whatever reason just to find that. So I find your article you know, like, helpful. You can for... always just DM me if you're curious. If you've got <laughs> agronomy questions. That's uh, yeah. That's that's my. I'm embarrassed to admit that's that's my realm. Yeah. Well, I got your articles now. So I mean, before I would have that would have definitely helped. But yeah, like I I read it every Monday before I go into my model and build that out for golf. This is golf specific, obviously. But really, I mostly operate on my own. I like to kind of have like my own unique like look at it and I don't really look to others for like particular like um, advice or like to get a pulse on the industry like I feel like using ownership projections from a few different sites you can kind of get a good enough pulse you can kind of figure if a guy's going to get steamed like a little bit more or not based on their recent results like that tends to drive it the most in golf I would say like recent results or like hometown narratives seem to be the two that like really if a guy's like projected for 10%, like he might end up at 15% or whatever um, from those types of things. The only thing I really like listen to, I do listen to some stuff just for entertainment purposes. Like I'll listen to the stochastic golf show because those guys are like my friends or whatever. But the only show I really listen to for actual information, I would say it would be NBA shows because there's so much news going on and having right. like another, having like another set of eyes and ears on the news, like, Oh, this just happened. This just happened. So you don't miss anything. That's really the big thing for me. Otherwise, like I pretty much just keep it all to myself with, uh, with uh, building out my lineups and my teams and projections and that kind of stuff. What would you say your relationship is to the DFS industry at a whole? Like, how do you feel about, touting where it's going if it's gone too far i think it's a complicated issue in DraftKings. i think the idea of touting in DraftKings is far more complicated than it is in gambling because you're playing against people obviously and you know for me it got to a certain point where in the wednesday articles that i used to do uh i used to release my entire 
player pool and another smart DraftKings player that I talked to was like, why are you doing this? Like, do you, like you do realize that a lot of people that read that article are playing in the exact same contest as you. Why would you, why do you need to share your entire player pool? And that's the tricky thing that I run into with DFS touting is there's kind of this fine line between people giving picks, people giving information. I think it gets muddied a little bit in a game where you're not trying to beat a sports book, but you're trying to beat often the people that you're giving information to. So how do you marry those two things? Yeah, I, I think this might actually be a better question like for you to answer than for me to answer, being that you're on that side of it. Like for me, like I guess I could give my perspective on it. Like I do feel like it's a complicated thing. Like it's probably one of the reasons why I can't see myself getting into like any sort of touting, like any or anything like that really for money. Like I do a Twitter thing every week, but that's just like I just put five plays I like and don't like. Like there's nothing to it, not charging anyone. I don't care what the results are, like at the end of the day. Whereas like if I was doing it like seriously, like as a full-time job, like I would really care. I would probably stress over that kind of stuff. And then at the same time, you have, like you said, the weird dynamic between you're giving people information and then you're also playing with against them. It's uh, I don't know, the whole touting business for DFS compared like sports betting, it makes sense. You're playing against the book, nobody likes the books, like fuck the books, they can burn, like no one cares. But when you're playing against each other, it's it's kind of like a weird relationship. And it's like, I never really understood why people like I never really understood why touting even blew up. Like it wouldn't it make sense that if you thought you had an edge to not like give people the information that you had, like you would want to just play for them or play against them for money for as long as you could. Wouldn't that be the most profitable way to do it? Um, to me, I think it would just be a really difficult thing to balance. So I'm not sure how I would handle it if I got into more touting, like seriously. It it is tricky, and you know, I told you that story about how I used to have the player pull in my article. When I stopped doing that, people actually got really mad. Yeah. Um, I think at maybe a few. I know at least one or two people were actually told me they're like, I'm dropping my subscription if you're not giving the player pool anymore. And I was like, well, man, I, you know, I know I'm not giving you the names of the exact guys that I'm actually playing, but I, my hope is that my information is good and my information can lead you to make your own informed decisions. I know that I'm really good at putting out good information on golf courses and golf golfers. I don't always make the best decisions with that information. Um, so I don't know why you wouldn't just use all of the information and be able to make your own decisions. We're probably going to end up on similar guys, right? And the thing that's tricky is I think most people just want to be told what to do, right? In, you know, I answer questions in the Rick Run Good Slack channel. And Ninety, I'd say ninety-five percent of the questions that I get are just straight up Adam Hadwin or Denny McCarthy. They don't want to know why. They don't care about anything else. They just want me to tell them who to play, right? And I, I think that is kind of frustrating on my side of it because I don't really want to be somebody that is selling picks. I would. I'm down to sell information because I work really hard on my information. Um, and I think my information's good, but 
like I said, I make terrible decisions with my own information all the time, right? So I think it is kind of a tricky line to walk that I don't know where this goes in the future with all of these touting sites and how other people navigate telling people who to play versus trying to just put out good information and encouraging people to use that information to make their own decisions. That's where I hope the quote unquote industry is going, but I don't know how optimistic I am about that. I don't really understand either why, like how people find an enjoyment in like just getting picks from people. Like for me, the enjoyment is like the struggle and like the developing your own process and coming to your own conclusions and winning, winning, building winning lineups with like your own decisions. You know, I mean, you could use other people's information to do that. But at the end of the day, if someone is telling you, like, put all these guys in your lineup, like, where's, where's the satisfaction in that? Where did like, is it just, they just don't care. They just, they just want to win. And then that's it. Like, I, I think so. I think so. And I think people, you know, especially people that are like, I don't pay for any, I pay for like data websites and stuff like that, but I, I don't, subscribe to any other tout sites or anything like that. But I think the people that are paying money do probably have a sense of like, hey, if I'm spending 15 bucks a month on your website, like I expect you to help me build 50% of my lineup maybe or 30% of my lineup or maybe guide guide me in the in the right direction. And that's why I was curious too is that now that because I imagine when you first started playing DraftKings, there wasn't much of that. There wasn't all these different competing tout sites competing for subs and 50 different articles a week and 50 different podcasts a week. Do you think that you have a bigger edge now with all of the oversaturation of information? Because some of it's bad information. A lot of it's getting better. Like a lot of the information is getting better. I mean, you look at some of the guys that are chalk these days that are good chalk. I mean, they would have never been back in the day, even when I first started playing, which was way after you at the beginning of COVID. So do you think the increase of information and the oversaturation and content has maybe helped your edge or made it harder? Uh, I would say it's definitely made it harder. I would say like you're definitely... With the amount of information, I, I agree. Shows, by the way, completely. Yeah, like the only show that I can think of, and I'm sure there was maybe a few others, but may, maybe not even. But the only thing that I know of that there was a daily show of was Roto Grinders. Like when I was first coming up and learning, but now there's you got four, five, six, probably more than that different sites. Everyone's there's a bunch of people making YouTube videos. There's so much content out there, and even even if some of it's bad, there's still a lot of it that's good. A lot of pros like especially big name pros awesome like the biggest one who's like sort of taken a back seat and gone to more content or releasing their own projections they're definitely raising the floor of other people's lineups and you can tell by like how many people are watching these shows too like it was like you'd see like maybe a couple hundred people before now you watch certain shows coming up to lock you're seeing like a thousand two thousand people like that's gonna make up like a good chunk of the people in your contests um, so, and they're definitely like not getting bad information from a lot of these shows. We could debate on, you know, which ones are better than others, or maybe some are bad, but, uh, at the end of the day, I think it, overall, they're definitely raising the floor of people's lineups versus everyone just going in on their own information, 
Um, and like a lot of the casual people that are coming in, if they're just reading an article or watching a show before lock, they're going to make a way better lineup than they did five years ago, just doing it completely off their own instincts and whatever like that. I agree. If you were, and we'll transition into talking more specifically about golf soon, but I want to zoom out for a second. If you were advising somebody like a general sports fan, that's just getting into DraftKings right now. What do you think is the sport of the ones that you have some knowledge on and that you play that you think still does have the biggest edge or that you still think you may have the biggest edge in? Yeah, it's got to be NFL just due to the volume. Like NFL is always going to be like majority casual users. Even if there's people that are pros or like sharks that come in only for NFL, just because of the size of the contests, it's going to be majority of people that are not really like doing this seriously. And like for other sports, you're seeing like the 150 maxers are taking up way larger percentage of the overall entries in MLB and NBA. And that's not to say they're all great players, but a lot of them are good players. Um, Whereas in a contest like an NFL contest on a Sunday, they're not going to be able to take up that same percentage of the overall entries. So for me, and like going forward in DFS, like I don't know how much longer, like I don't need to sound like doom and gloom or whatever, because I don't think it's a dying industry. I think we've maybe plateaued, but and sports betting in a way is probably like helping the plateau or whatever, like live on, whereas like the line, maybe it was going down. But if people are trickling in from sports betting indirectly, whereas like before these companies weren't advertising at all, like it's helping kind of keep it, keep it level, whereas it could have been declining. Um, But I feel like the daily sports like MLB, NBA, the contests, like the big contest has gotten up like higher and higher entry fees. And the prize pool has gotten lower and lower. Like four or five years ago, it used to be like an $8 contest for the same prize pool. Now it's like a $15, $20 contest. So that's less overall entries, right? Which tells you that the money is shrinking or the casual user base is shrinking. It's a lot more pros. Um, So golf, I think golf and NFL will probably like last the longest because they're not every day. Um, It gives like more people more time to get in there and enter. And NFL just... NFL is its own beast, right? Like even if all the other sports die off, like NFL DFS will live on longer than any of them. Do you think there's anything that DraftKings could do? Cause that's interesting that you say it's plateauing. I want to dive into that a little bit more. Why do you think that is? And do you think that there's anything that DraftKings? Cause I know like you dove into the rainmaker stuff and I, I kind of operate outside of that and have no idea in terms of its long-term prospects or how you feel about its long-term prospects. But why do you think that DFS is maybe... Because I think sports betting, if we just talk about sports betting, I think that is massively on the rise. And we'll only... I mean, it's, it's still not legal in Texas and California, which is crazy. So I have to imagine that when sports betting becomes legal in Texas and California, it's only going to increase. But what do you think some of the challengers challenges that that DraftKings faces in this in keeping up, I guess? Well, I just don't think there is an incentivized to like grow their DFS product versus their sports betting. Like the end goal for them like was always to get their foot in the door with this and then eventually like be able to argue so-and-so or whatever, or just establish a customer base for when sports betting eventually did get legal. Like that was the end game for DraftKings and FanDuel all along. The DFS was just sort of a way in the door, build their company up 
and it caught fire and they they blew up like pretty huge but i don't really think that if you ask them like what their goal was like if they'd rather have a dfs product or a sports book they would definitely say a sports book it makes them more money they're going directly against the user like they're on, they're not taking their 15 or 16%. Like they can just, they can take all the money from all these people if they're, if they're winning against them. Right. Why, why would they like, essentially the rake is just like, I don't know how to word it. I mean, it's just not like, they could just be making more money if they're, if their sports book was successful versus their DFS product. And like, you can see with like how the advertising has shifted just purely being sports book based now. Whereas like, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, five years ago, there was maybe not five years ago, but definitely 10 years ago, they're advertising their DFS products. It's just kind of the, the way, uh, the way the market has shifted. Um, the DFS game is like a lot more complex than sports betting is. It's really easy to just pick a team to win or pick your favorite guy to get as many points or do this or do that. than it is to come in and build lineups all the time. It's a little more of a grind. So I think it's probably more appealing to casuals too. And there's more effort involved in DFS, not just in the sense that you have to build a lineup of six golfers based on betting maybe one golfer to win or a golfer to finish top 20 or a golfer to win a matchup, but there's an extra component of it is being good at DFS is not, is very different than being good at betting because in DraftKings, it's not, it's not just figuring out who's a good course fit or who's in good recent form. There's also the added component of ownership, which I think people underrate too much. And not only do you just have to find guys that are good course fits and are good recent or in good recent form, but that doesn't necessarily make them a good play in DraftKings, right? There's this extra element where if you want to succeed in DraftKings, you kind of have to have your finger on the pulse of what the other players are doing as well. And that takes up a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. I, I'm not sure. Like I would say in terms of all the sports, like golf, I mean, you definitely don't want to load up with like a ton of chalk, but it's also pretty easy to build like a unique golf lineup versus like, like yes. NBA is the worst, the worst one, like NBA, there's like a lot more duping, a lot more like very similar lineups. Like I think in golf, you can uh, you can do okay with just doing like one, getting like one or two pivots to make your team different. As long as your like combined ownership of your team isn't like going crazy, like over one hundred and like thirty percent or something combined, like you're not really going to build a lineup that's duped with too many people or really any people. I mean, the goal is to not be duped at all, especially in like a large field or a large uh, percentage of the prize for first place, because that really cuts your equity off if you uh, if you do end up winning to not get the full prize, which is the the main goal. And in terms of golf, what does what does a gen, what does a week generally look like for you? Are you playing the same contests every week? Do you follow a very similar personal process every week in terms of how much time and effort you put into every tournament? Are there some tournaments you think are more exploitable than others? Um, how do you kind of approach your your golf process? We'll say. Yes. Yeah, so on Monday morning. Typically, I basically get everything set up whenever. Well, I guess it's not necessarily morning, but whenever your, your uh, article comes out, I usually look at that, start building my model up. And then I really don't look at golf again until like Wednesday night, honestly. Um, there's other sports going on. Like I don't just play golf. I play baseball or basketball, whatever is in season. And there's weather, there's ownership. And I don't really like coming up with like conclusions on a Monday when so much could change between Monday and Wednesday night anyways. 
So I just kind of, I set up the model and I do go back and I'll tweak it or whatever on Wednesday night, but I set it up because I like want to get in uh, golf bets early, right before the lines move. That's really the only reason or else I wouldn't even set it up at all until Wednesday. Right. Um, so yeah, I basically do that. And then pretty much entering the same stuff every week on for the main slate. I usually have like the one big single entry team, which makes up a large majority of my entries, which wasn't how I always was. I used to be really heavily focused on uh, multi-entering, um, sort of talked with some people about what would be the best way to allocate the money that I was spending each week. And it seemed like the conclusion was to move it more to like higher dollar single entry or three entry, four entry versus playing in the lottery contest. Like you're just going to, even if your edge is a little bigger in those contests, the like amount of time it takes to realize that edge, which could literally be like after you die, like long, <laughs> like it's like you can't afford to like, it's a little bit of equity you're sacrificing, but you're going to see more stable results, um, assuming you're a winning player. Um, so I moved to that showdowns kind of it kind of depends like DraftKings puts out like really crappy contests sometimes like if they do like a 33 percent to first or whatever like a 51 50k usually i, I don't mac, mass multi-enter that but if they put out something decent i will um but typically i'm big single entry lineup in thursday like the main slate and then also friday saturday sunday all the showdown slates so really like the thursday slate probably only makes up like a quarter of my volume maybe a little bit more than a quarter and are you what are you like locked into ESPN Plus? Are you are you tilting this stuff on Shot Tracker? How much golf do you actually watch? I watched a lot more when they had it on, like they moved it recently from whatever it was on before Golf TV. I think you maybe know better. You're in um, Canada too, yeah. for the listeners, so they know. So your viewing might be a little bit different than a lot of our American oh, listeners. Oh yeah, that's true. They had it on Golf TV, I think it was, and they moved it to TSN. And I didn't want to. I don't know. I haven't subscribed to the TSN or TSN or whatever, so I haven't. It wasn't uh, on TSN yesterday. I could tell you, I flew back from Canada this morning, and we were in shambles trying to watch the final round of the Rocket Mortgage. Yeah, they probably not, not that our American situation was any better. It was actually probably more confusing for Americans, I would imagine. Yeah, I saw people tilting that on Twitter. So I don't think it, I don't think anyone was happy to be <laughs> honest about about that. Which it was the rocket mortgage, so they probably figured that no one would care anyways. But it turns out a lot of people cared because it was because you actually got Ricky. really yeah. Ricky was in there. It was a really interesting fi- like final with Morikawa and Hadwin up there too. Yeah, sorry, I'm kind of lost now. What were we talking about? <laughs> We were, we were talking about how much golf you actually watch. I'm, I'm actually curious about, because I, I think, and I, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's so fascinating to me. And I didn't really understand this concept until I started to understand how important game theory is, but some of the smartest DFS people that win a ton of money on DFS, like don't actually watch the sports at all, or really are fans or know much about, I guess, like, um, they're like a, uh, a basically a, like a, how a regular sports fan would understand golf. If that makes sense. Like they don't care about, you know, who's going to make the Ryder cup team or, you know, how many, if this tournament is a birdie fast, they basically just operate inside a realm of, I know how to build models and I understand game theory. And that is the secret to winning the most money in DFS, which is, which is interesting to me. 
Yeah, I I watch like a lot of sports, honestly, probably more than most people that would play like my volume. Like I like I pretty much am like a fan. A lot of the sports I watch, I watch them sort of like like shot shot tracker for golf. For MLB, I'll, I'll like have a bunch of tabs open and looking at like different uh, what's it called on MLB? Um, I don't know what it's called. Oh, game day, game day. What it's called where you just like you can see like the balls and strikes or whatever. But it's kind of weird that I don't watch like the actual sports themselves a lot. But I like watching like a lot of box scores uh, instead, just like so can like see everything happening all at once. Um, that being said, like for NFL, I and I really tried to make an effort to do this because like we kind of touched on it earlier about the losing your fandom when it comes to gambling and how money kind of complicates it. When it came to the NFL for all like the like Island games, like the Sunday game, <clears throat> Monday game or whatever, I like really made an effort to just like make one team sit down and just like kind of like soak in like the game itself and like not try and uh, just become like a computer, like just looking at numbers all the time, kind of guy that just has was, like out of touch with the actual sport. Like I do love watching all the sports. Um, I don't necessarily think that it's helpful really at all for daily fantasy. So that's kind of, I think that's really where the main argument is where you'll see a lot of people will say, Oh, you got to watch the sports to know this and that, or I know that this guy was shooting well this day, or he, he was hitting his irons better on this morning or whatever. Like, I don't think that stuff really matters, but from like an enjoyment and just from sweating the bets and stuff that I have out there, I do really like to, get in there and watch every day and i feel like my tweets are probably kind of evident of that because i'm usually always tilting something that's happening like that day in sports so i i'll stand up for the eye test a little bit but i agree with you in the sense that i don't think it's the most important aspect of it i kind of curious too about what what you think that because i'm sure you see probably see a ton of stuff on twitter that makes you throw your hands up in the air what is what do you think people are missing maybe uh, in terms of if they're looking to become more successful at this? We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. That is a pretty good question. Um, 
I'm really not sure. I think I think a lot of it. I think a lot of people kind of get blinded by their own biases. Yeah, um, it's a good one. And that's like a good reason to like sort of separate the eye test, which maybe it does have some value in certain situations. But if you just rely on letting like the numbers and stuff kind of speak on on their merit and not kind of inserting your own personal biases into things that you could probably have more success that way. I see a lot of people are always talking about, oh, this guy was the best play. Oh, who cares how old he was? He did well or whatever. Like, I think people kind of misunderstand like what the best plays are like really are and like they think that ownership is like a separate thing from that whereas ownership is really like another variable that goes into what makes the best play the best play like if you think john rom is going to win the tournament but he's 40 percent owned this is an extreme example and then you have rory mcelroy that's two percent owned and he's the same price well it doesn't matter if john rom is slightly more likely to win like rory mcelroy is the better play it's not right. really like he's not that 20 really times. Close. He's not 20 times more likely to win, especially in a sport with as much variance as golf. Exactly. Right. Like, it, it, you know, in the NFL, at least like certain quarterbacks, like they're just going to put up numbers. Right. But golf is so high variance. And I think that's part of the thing that people do miss a little bit with the ownership argument is like, listen, I, cause I get flack for, you know, pivoting too much. And I do honestly probably make the mistake of over pivoting sometimes, but the way that I try and look at it is, is like a guy, if a guy's 20% and a guy is 10%, I, if I'm going to play the guy that, and we'll say they're similar price and similar golfers and similar in, in your model or whatever, if I'm going to play the guy that's 20%, I better be willing to bet that guy minus 200 in a matchup against the other guy, right? Like I, I, I need to like that guy double what I like the guy at 10%. I need to think that he is double as likely to outperform the guy at 10%. And sometimes you do, right? Like sometimes if you're that high on a player, then good, you should play that guy and you should be completely overexposed on that guy. But I think a lot of people don't realize that the margins between the 20% guy and the 10% guy are a lot slimmer that people think. And so maybe if a guy is number one in your model and he's 20% owned and there's a guy that's number 36 in your model, that's 5% owned. I think people still overrate how big that difference is between the two guys. Yeah, I would say that's definitely true. Um, I think it's not necessarily as like black and white as you made it out to be though. Like you can, uh, I guess it kind of depends on what you're doing too. If you're building one lineup, I mean, obviously like if you're only doing one team, you got to have certain convictions and stands or whatever. But if you're not, if you're building like a pool of players, like it's not like I would say, Oh, I'm going to, I got to have like twice as much of this guy. Cause he's like, I like him this much more or whatever, where it would just be like, I would have like a, a different level of both of them, but I would still play both of them. Um, so I guess it kind of things like that kind of depend on how many lineups you're making, I guess as well. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think with single entry too, I mean, I, I don't, I end up, I think that single entry is still a great opportunity to pivot in a lot of cases, but yeah, I mean, I think context contest selection plays a massive role in that as well. I mean, are you, do you feel like on a week to week basis, 
you mostly said you play the same type of stuff every week, but do you have any advice for people in terms of this is the strategy that I would take for, I don't know, maybe somebody that's starting out. Would you lead them down the route of single entries? Would you lead them down the route of building 150 lineups with one of the websites and generating a player pool and using projections? Like, Where do you think is a good place for a lot of people to start? I think single entry is probably the best place to start because you can definitely like yeah, focus too. your attention into it and like actually make sure you make a good lineup. Like there's no guarantee. People have these misconceptions about entering like 20 or 150 lineups that you're going to win all this money because you're covering all the combos or whatever like that. But it's sort of like a trash in trash out thing. Like if you make 150 terrible teams, you're going to lose 150 times as fast as you would have the first like time. So if you focus on getting your one lineup down, and then you start expanding your process to 20 teams, start learning how to build lineups in an optimizer, and then you take it from there and you want to go up to 150 after that, then sure. But I definitely wouldn't say, oh, you need to just do 150 right away, especially when you think about the nature of all the 150 max contests. Like a lot of them are like extremely top heavy lottery based contests where even the best players are like getting their shit kicked in like almost every night. Like that's just kind of the reality of it. And you're just hoping that at the end of the year, you've gotten a couple first places and you come out ahead. And if you don't, you're going to be down like six figures easy on a season. If you don't have a good, if you don't have a couple good results in there. And like, obviously if someone's just starting, they're not going to, it's not going to be exaggerated like that. Cause they're not going to be playing that level of contest, but for the level that they're playing, they could see similar type losses in like a $1, 150 max, or they end up losing who knows five, six grand or whatever over the course of the year, because they don't know what they're doing. They're making bad lineups. Um, so you basically just want to, you want to figure things out like one step at a time, work on making your single entry team. Don't put in like all these like chalk guys work on building a team where you got a good mix of both. And then if you want to start expanding from there, then do it like that. It's also, you don't really want to necessarily be spending a ton on a bunch of different resources. So like, you don't want to be spending a ton on like an optimizer and all these other things when your entry levels don't like suggest that you should even be doing that. So at the start, I would just work on consuming some content, building a single entry team, seeing if you get results and then go from there. All right. I think that's all I got on some questions I had for you. Hopefully, I mean, I could talk, I could talk this with you all day. So hopefully this is the first of multiple similar conversations, but you want to transition to talk a little John Deere? Sure. I mean, these are, you kind of, you asked about it before, about like what kind of uh, fields were, you think that you would have the most edge in. And like, I really do believe that these fields where you got guys that people have never even heard of really. I mean, people have started to hear of like Eric Cole and whatever now. I mean, by people, I don't mean like the people in the inner DFS sphere, but like the majority of golf people might not have a clue who some of these guys are. And like, these guys are the favorites this week, which means like even further down the board, you're going to have even more like random, like not very well-known people. And if you have the pulse on these guys in a field like this, where they can actually do some serious damage, like I think it's a really good spot to actually like utilize your edge in, in golf. Um, I agree. I actually don't mind. I don't know how much golf I'm going to be able to watch this weekend, um, but I'm definitely excited to play weeks like this for part of the reason that you said. And I also think that if you play DraftKings the way that I typically play DraftKings, which is I try and shoot for having six of sixes on a week where it's a very low six of six percentage. And I 
typically tend to play guys at lower ownership. Um, I think a tournament that has this much dependent on putting and the separation from T to green is not what you would find. Like I, I use this example all the time, but if John Rom and Brendan Todd played TPC Deer Run 10 times, and if John Rom and Brendan Todd played Tory Pines 10 times, the probability that Brendan Todd would be able to outplay John Rom at this golf course uh, is so much higher than he would at t- at Tory Pines. It doesn't doesn't mean that he is going to, but his chant the gap, the separation, the advantage, the edge that a Rory, a John Rom is able to create at a golf course like TPC Deer Run is so much smaller. Which again makes it in my opinion a more compelling argument to take some chances and fade some of the guys that everyone is just absolutely convinced uh are going to outperform the other players so we're not really going to give picks not really not really what we're about i kind of want to talk more about ownership on a broader level but let's kind of quickly go through the ranges and talk about what we're seeing for ownership at the top if we're looking at these guys of denny Russell Henley, Ludwig, who allegedly did not win last week. Um, I really thought that that I kind of went offline for a couple of days and found out on Sunday that he did, in fact, not win the Rocket Mortgage and didn't also go five and zero in the Ryder Cup. But it's Denny Russell, Ludwig, and Cameron Young in the ten k range. How do you think ownership shakes out there at the top? Yeah, I think. It's kind of crazy that Denny McCarthy at the highest price also might be the highest owned, but I feel like it's going to be him or Henley. Like Cameron yeah, Young, too. Cameron Young's got to come in the lowest owned, which is kind of a crime to say in this field. But I think he's just been so bad, like for so long that people are going to have a hard time playing him. And like you got Aberg up there, Hadwin was in the playoff last week. I know he's not 10K, but he's right below him. And it seems like the entire industry, I know I'm kind of going a little bit underneath the 10K, but there's only four guys. Like you kind of got to start including some of the other guys. The pricing yeah. is actually pretty interesting this week, which I guess is reflective of the field, but there's no like real expensive guy and you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, but like we got Eric Cole right there, 9,700. It seems like the entire world is on him this week. I'm really. And Shank. Yeah, Shank as well. Yeah, Mitchell is the play right in between them. I'm just gonna say it now. I mean, I he's gonna Mitchell's gonna be five or six percent compared to, I think probably eighteen ish on Cole and Shank would be my early Monday guess. We'll we'll date this so we don't look stupid on Wednesday night, but we're recording this at on you know Monday late afternoon evening. Um, but I would imagine that I agree with you. I think if we're talking about the entire 9k range i think at 9k and 10k range i think denny and henley are going to get a ton of ownership because neither of them are too expensive i mean you could hypothetically play them both in the same lineup but it's very easy to go denny shank or denny cole or yeah. henley shank or henley cole so i or even had one so i actually think those four guys and maybe Maybe Ludwig and Hadwin sneak up into that 15, 16% zone. But I think there's opportunities with Poston, with I like Keith Mitchell, as I mentioned, and as you mentioned, Cameron Young. 
Yeah, are they on? I, I read your article, but are they on? They're on Bermuda, right? Like, I don't really believe in the putting that, like they're band. On that. Oh, okay, because yeah. it's, it's Bermuda Keith, right? That's his nickname. I'm pretty sure. Like, yeah. I don't really believe in the putting stuff that much. I'm sure I'm I'm wrong about that or whatever. Like, people uh, that are really into golf are. Nah, it, you're not wrong. I mean, it's it's plays a factor, but people, it's probably the pendulum's probably swung too far. Yeah. But like the only one I've ever believed in was just Bermuda Keith Mitchell. Like he just always seems to like his putting is so horrible that like when he's not, when he's putting on Bermuda though, it seems like it's not so bad. Although, he, you know what? I'm looking at my model and his putting's actually been like pretty good, like decent this year. So that's an old narrative. Too. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's sneakily, he can, he's sneakily pretty good on bat too. Um, I, I agree. And then I think the, where it gets more interesting too is, I love, like, I bet both of these guys. I bet Alex Smalley this week, and I also bet Jaeger this week. I'm very curious to see how highly owned there are because I'm, I'm surprised Jaeger isn't a little higher priced when, especially like in the betting markets, he was 50 to one last week, finishes ninth, goes to a much weaker field and is 40 to one. And in DraftKings, I think last week he was eighty one hundred, maybe He's somewhere in that eight yeah. K range. Yeah, so I love Jaeger and Smalley. I, I'm just concerned that they might be, but you know, if you're willing to get different with guys like Cameron Young and Poston, then you could probably eat some of whatever Smalley and Jaeger end up being if you really like them, which I do. For sure, yeah. I got Jaeger. He's coming in as probably one of the highest owned guys right now, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, with the odds and where his prices, you you think like especially some of the guys that he's just right below, like Seamus. Like, how did Seamus Power get to ninety one hundred? Yeah. Or J, JT Poston hasn't played that well, and it's kind of funny. The thing we kind of touched on it earlier when I said like the Keith Mitchell with the putting, right? That's, that's kind of like an eye test thing or a thing I had in the back of my head where like. I just think Keith Mitchell's a bad putter. Like the numbers don't even really bear that like to be true at this point. But like in my head, that's just stuck in my head so long that like if I were just making lineups without any data, like I might just think, oh, Keith Mitchell's a bad putter. He can't do this. But like I like I opened up my model. And it's like, oh, he's like pretty good this year. Good on this surface, that surface. Like that's another another advantage to like kind of leaving your biases out of the DFS process in general. Or like uh, this guy plays well in easy scoring conditions versus this guy plays well in hard scoring conditions. Well, even all the guys that you think are better in hard scoring conditions at one point in their life, whether it was in junior golf or college on the corn Ferry tour, they were having to win tournaments at 20 under par. Right. Yeah. So I know that Cameron young finished, you know, top five and two out of the la two out of the four majors in 2022, but he also won like three times on the corn Ferry tour at 20 under par. Right. And that's the thing that I think people miss a lot with the, this is, this guy's a bad putter, so he can't get to 20 under par. Well, there are a lot of external factors that contribute to what makes a tournament be one at 20 under par. And a lot of the time, as you see, like objectively bad putters can putt well at a place that requires you to go 20 under par because of the opportunities that they're able to generate for themselves. Like Michael Kim won the John Deere in 2018 at 300 to one was had a form of like miscut, 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 miscut was a terrible putter that season and then gains 13.5 strokes putting and wins the John Deere. 
Yeah, I think he literally had like like a twenty percent made cut rate or something that season. Like it was, I that was actually kind of around the time when I got into golf, and I was just like completely blown away by this guy. That I was like, how did this guy win? Like this should even be like I didn't even really know that much about golf, so I was like, should this guy even be on tour? Like his like his stats are just so bad. Like I couldn't even believe it. But, yeah, uh, I um, I feel like in this AK range, I talked about the guys that I liked at the top. Is there anyone else in the? mid to low eights that you want to shout out because I generally find opportunity here. I, I generally feel like on a lot of weeks when I'm writing my article on Wednesday and really going through ownership, I'm like, wow, man, this AK range is kind of dead. And I end up finding myself play a lot of guys in the low eights. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's like a thing where people build out their lineups and you get the guys at the top and then like, and even if you build them through an optimizer with how projections work, like you get a couple guys in like 9K or 10K plus, and then you need some like guys that fill in in like the 7Ks and like they don't really project that much differently than a guy that's like 8,300, say. So this that kind of range just goes like missed a lot of the time because like realistically, what's the difference between like Patrick Rogers and whoever, like Brendan Todd or Dylan Wu? Like, is there even really that big of a difference? Like I say Patrick Rogers because I actually like him a lot this week. Me too. Um I mean, he just, he can, he can pretty much do anything. Like he can crush the ball pretty well. And he's a good putter and he missed last week. So especially if that tag stays on him, he's, he's still listed as out on DraftKings. Like if that stays on him until, you know, Wednesday night, it might keep his ownership down a little bit too. So, yeah, I like, I think Nick Taylor's actually underpriced in this field too. I thought Nick Taylor would be I don't think Nick Taylor's going to win like twice in three starts, but I thought that he would Why be. Not? I think, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> I thought that he would be higher, closer to the nines. And then I like Kucher as well, because I think, I think that a lot of that ownership is going to be, people are going to keep playing Doug Gim. And then once you get into the high sevens, probably Chaz and Hubbard are going to continue to get some run. And maybe even Ryan Palmer as well, who I also like, who's starting to play some really good golf. Yeah. We're actually like crazy well aligned. Like, you're basically never a good off. sign never a good <laughs> sign <laughs> you're almost reading off my model like we're talking about like guys that are like in like the top 10 top 15 like taylor palmer kuchar like i love all those guys up there and i'm like i'm a, definitely against doug gim me too he's gonna he's probably gonna be in the fish food again this week if i had to guess like and we don't have ownership like definitive right at this point but like early stuff i'm seeing like 13 14 percent yeah, that's not going to be like, I mean, how, like, what did Doug Gim even do to deserve this price and ownership? I don't understand, really. Um, I'm with you. I'm not a Gim guy. Do you have any, uh, do you have any other leaders in the club, clubhouse for, for fish food? Hmm. Let me take a look at this. Taylor can Moore I, is sometimes, a, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, can I interest you in like a 15% Dylan Wu? Oh man. See, I really like Dylan Wu's problem. Like I like him again this week. He probably won't be a fish food for me because I like, I like him too much that even though he's owned, it was just it's like, it's not going to be like a play that I'm happy about, but usually the guys that are fish food, like I legitimately don't like them. I like, sometimes I don't play them at all. Like I think that the market is just really off on these guys. So Dylan Wu, he, it's getting sketchy like at that 15 percent, especially it's getting kind of sketchy i was hoping that maybe like the the round four where he didn't really do that well he shot even par you know that's not a very good score for the rocket mortgage so i was hoping people wouldn't go back to him but it kind of looks like they're going to so 
a little bit unfortunate, but I'll probably find different ways to be unique and I'll just jam them in there anyways. Yeah. Is there anybody in the mid to low sevens that you want to shout out that uh, you think might be flying? And then we'll finish off by talking about a few six guy K guys, which is our specialty. But is there anyone in the mid to low sevens that you think people might be sleeping on a little bit that you want to give a shout to? Yeah, mid to low sevens. Um, for me, it's probably going to be Ben Martin again. Uh, the guy's kind of burned me a couple times, but he's, uh, his his iron game looks pretty solid. And uh, they only I'm only seeing him at like 2 or 3% right now. He doesn't seem like he's a horrible putter. I mean, he's not like a special putter or anything like that. But And I actually do. People that have followed me for a while probably think like, oh, anybody that can make a putt, like I don't think they're legitimate golfers or anything like that. I've actually incorporated it like more and more into my model as time has gone on. And like I do look at it. I, I do care about putting. Like don't get me wrong. But at the same time, when a guy comes on the course and he just makes like three, like 30 plus footers in the same day and he's really owned, it's like it's still aggravating at the end of the day. I mean, it still is a little bit of luck, even if they are really good at putting. I do understand that there is skill in putting. Like I'm not totally, you know, ignorant to that. It, there is skill in putting, but it's also, I mean, statistically, it is the easiest strokes gain metric to flip on a day-to-day basis. Like you will see, it is far more likely and far more common for a player to go from minus five putting one day to plus five putting the next day. Whereas it's a lot, it's a lot, unless you figure something crazy out on the range, it's a lot harder to go from minus five on approach one day to plus five on approach the next day. So that's the only reason why we talk about the variance game with putting. Yeah, that makes sense. Like the only way I could really see the strokes like flipping that way for off the tee or approach is if you start getting like penalties involved, like hitting right. couple balls in the water, right? Where that drastically messes your stroke gained for those uh those right. stats for that day. Right. Speaking of bad putters, I'm in on Akshay as just I think the shines off him a little bit with the he was a super popular bad in, in Mexico and Puerto Rico and you know, he he seemed like the guy that everybody was going to latch onto, and then yep. and then Ludwig came along and stole his thunder, and now you've got Gordon Sargent in the mix as well. But I think there's opportunity with Akshay in terms of being early on a guy that I really believe in his talent. And despite you know you're getting a decent by low spot on him coming off a miscut, still hitting the ball really well. The putter's just been a massive problem for him. But you know, in terms of I think Ludwig's like better than Akshay and will be better than Akshay long term. But, you know, Akshay still is the guy that's like contended in PGA Tour events, right? And contended in easier PGA Tour events like Mexico and Puerto Rico. And this field is not that this, it actually, it's definitely worse than Mexico because you don't have John Rahm. It's really not all that dissimilar from Puerto Rico, where he finished top five as well. So if you're giving me Akshay at 7,100 and probably max 5%, um, that's probably my favorite guy down in the low sevens. I like Carson Young a lot this week too, but he is perpetually overowned. Yeah, the public seems to love Carson Young and they did love Akshay as well. Like you said, like they I mean, did, if, we, yeah. if we did this, if we did this tournament like a month or two months ago, like we would have been talking about him at a lot higher price, a lot higher ownership. But yeah, I don't really see uh, 
I don't really see the ownership coming his way. And I, I'm going to be honest, I really haven't been a big Akshay guy. I think I think I kind of lag a little bit with these players because I my golf process is so data-driven and, like, there's not data on these guys. Like, same thing with Aberg. Like, I just perpetually don't really like new players until I get a lot of information on them. So that's, I really haven't That's been. what I'm actively working on because yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I feel the same way. So like Akshay, I've never really been on Akshay that much. This would probably, this is probably going to be the first week that I really am on him. Like the ball striking over the sample that we have now, it looks really good. I mean, the putter is horrible, but you know, I don't really care about that too much. So, I mean, I could definitely be interested in him now. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, and I don't really, I would love to like try and figure out a way and maybe you have an idea. Like, how do we, how do we quantify this? Like, how do we like get on these guys where we don't have any information. We only have, they played college. Maybe they played corn fairy. Like, how do you get on a guy early? Like, do you just have to like, is that, is that just a situation where you just have to have like an eye test and just trust it or whatever? Cause I never know. I never know what to do with guys where there's no, there's no information for them. And I know that that is probably a leak to some degree. I'm definitely missing out on guys, but I don't know any better solution than to just avoid like things that are completely unknown unless they're so low owned that it's like worth taking a chance. But it seems like these young guys get steamed up a lot. And then, and then it's like, at that point, it's like, do I really want to play a whatever? I mean, 5% isn't a lot for Gordon Sargent. I'm thinking about it. The masters. Right. It's like, do I really want to play this guy when he's like some, some amount of the fields on him? I don't know anything about him. Or do I want to play Aberg who's played twice and like 20% of the field loves him whatever week? Like, do I, do I want to go with this guy or do I want to go with like the stuff that I can see? Well, I think it comes into like being able to capitalize on, and this is what I talked about last week with Aberg is that I think that books have just, and you know, who's ever pricing DraftKings have just gotten a lot smarter at being able to take advantage of people wanting to be early on a guy. Like Ludwig is, you know, a big, tall, hits the ball a mile, ton of power off the tee, had a great collegiate resume, nothing, anything more crazy than stuff that we've seen in the last five years, but like a collegiate resume that's on par with other great players like Matt Wolf and Colin Morikawa. And um, so I think with Ludwig now people are just going to be like, I'm done losing money on Adam Hadwin. And if I hit Adam Hadwin this week, it's going to feel a lot less fun than if I hit Ludwig, a future star on his first win. The problem is, is that people just latch on to one guy and there's opportunities on some of the others. Like what if Michael Thorpe Jordanson is a star? I'm not, he, Thorpe Jordanson could be unbelievable. You know, this is, Thorpe Jordanson's actually the guy, if we're talking about Thorpe Thorpe Jordanson, Ludwig. Is that how you say his name, by the way? <laughs> Maybe. I, I, I assumed it was Thor, Thor Bjornsson. Thor Bjornsson? Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure that's when you got the B and the J there. That's the sound it makes. Uh, I could be wrong. He's I've never Sta- heard him. He's the Stanford guy, right? But he's the guy that almost won the Travelers last year, right? Yeah. Which is way more than anything Ludwig's done on the PGA Tour. And he's 7,000 and going to be 0%, right? So... I think it's just being able to like, we all know that these guys, there's more data in college golf now 
and we all know that these guys are probably going to be studs, or at least they have a decorated enough collegiate resume that we have some comparison point where, okay, this guy did this thing in the amateur world. This guy did this thing in college. And that's similar to what Morikawa's trajectory looked like, or that's similar to what Hovland's trajectory looked like. Probably a good chance that it's always possible that he busts. And we see that too all the time. Probably a good chance that this kid has a ton of talent. I think what it is, is like we said, it's capitalizing on the guys that are already old news. Like Akshay was everybody's guy, and then he missed a couple cuts, and now people are like, oh, Ludwig's the guy. And it's like, well, is that a big enough sample size to say that Akshay isn't the guy anymore? Ludwig might be the guy, but why isn't Akshay the guy anymore, right? Why isn't Thor? Why why don't you feel that way about I'm not even going to say his last name again. The Stanford kid that's $7,000 and going to be 0%. So I think it just comes into public perception, I guess would be my long-winded way of saying it. Right. Like, and and like, if we're just comparing Aberg and uh, Akshay, like in my model, I have Akshay higher than Aberg and like Aberg is coming in as like one of the favorites for this tournament. So it's like, I mean, I could be wrong. Like we, we don't have enough data on either of these guys, which is like really muddies the process. A little bit with these newer guys but i mean i'm i'm just gonna roll out the problem i might full fade to ludwig even like i don't know how it's gonna look on wednesday night but there's like a decent chance that i'm gonna have none of him or very little of him and if it burns me again then it burns me again i guess i don't i don't really know a better way to do it right now so well, it, it hasn't burned you yet he hasn't well, finished top 20 on the pga tour so uh, fair enough <laughs> Yeah. And I don't even even, like, I'm good on, I don't, in terms of long-term, I have no interest in being on the other side of Ludwig. Like, I think he is talented as hell. I would put him on the Ryder Cup team. I think he's awesome. Uh, I think he's going to have a great career. We're talking about this, like you said, in the context of, is this guy a good play for this specific tournament this week? Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I don't really have any interest either. And like, it doesn't really matter to me. Like, it's, my career isn't like going to be judged on if I was early on Aberg or whoever, right? Like, it doesn't matter to me. Like, uh, there's no ego involved. I'm just trying to win money this week in DFS or so other people with betting. But like, the rest of it doesn't matter at all. Like, I'm not going to go tell my friends and they're going to think I'm a genius for hearing about some Swedish guy or wherever this guy's from before they did. Right. Right. Okay. I got a dinner very soon, so we got to talk about some of these 6K guys. Give me like one or two guys down here that are probably off most people's radar that you want to give a shout. Okay. This guy might not be fully off of everyone's radar. I don't know. I don't. This guy, he's been on the tour for a while, but I kind of like Satoshi Kodaira a little bit. Me too. <laughs> oh, man. We're in for a bad week, aren't we? Yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't know. I feel like he's just kind of always there. He kind of sneaks into rating out well in my model all the time. Like I'm looking at his stats a little closer. It's like nothing spectacular, but like he's not like terrible at anything, which is like pretty good for this week because there's a lot of terrible golfers in the field. What else are we seeing here? It's actually, I'm, I got like a lot of 7K guys, not a lot of like little 6K guys. Uh, Me too. I don't have many. I actually have, I have Satoshi. Yeah. Actually, I have a couple. I have Satoshi, I have Ryan Gerard, I have Tyler Duncan, I have Kevin Roy. Don't call me Logan Roy. 
Yeah. Kyle will like this guy for sure. I like him a little bit, but Maddie Schmidt. I don't, I don't know why I said Kyle. Like everyone knows who Kyle is. But it's like Huey Mac on Twitter. Back yeah. Kyle. Uh, I think he, on was, was he on your yeah. show once? Yeah, he's okay, been on the cool. pod multiple times. He's a good friend. We love Oh, Kyle. multiple times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we love yeah, Kyle. So we, we both kind of like Maddie Schmidt a little bit. I mean, that guy can hit the ball a mile. Can't really do anything else, but I mean, that's good enough for me this week. Yeah. Grayson Sig too. I would throw out there at sixty nine hundred. I'm giving him. I'm giving him a look, my friend. Uh, hopefully, this isn't your last podcast because uh, I really enjoyed doing this with you, uh, and would love to have you on in the future to talk more shitty golf tournaments and maybe pick your brain a little bit more about the bigger picture stuff with DraftKings. But before we get out of here, you got anything? I you got anything to plug your Twitter account, your Discord? Anything you want people to check out if they haven't already? I really don't have anything to plug. Like I'm not, I'm just kind of not just selling on my anything. own doing my, I'm not selling anything. That's for sure. But I will say that if this is the only pod I ever do, then you kind of get the, like the prestige of being my only like podcast ever, which I feel like is kind of a big deal in itself. Right. I mean, people believe it or not, have been trying really hard for, I, I mean, you've been trying hard for a little while too. <laughs> You're not the only one. And I've never done any of these with anyone and i'm not trying to sound like i'm some special person or whatever but i honestly didn't think i ever would do a podcast but this seemed like a good enough opportunity to do it and i like fields like this so it was a fun fun experience for me and maybe more down the road probably only crappy fields i'll let i'll let the like cooler guests you know the more the more high-end guests they can have the u.s open and whatever and when you need somebody to talk about the corrales or something you give me a call Sounds good, buddy. Well, good luck this week. I'm sure we will be uh, in discussion, sweating some of the same guys and uh, hope to do it again soon, my friend. Happy happy belated Canada Day. Yeah, and happy early American. What is it? What do you guys say? American yeah, Day, 4th of July. You just say 4th of July, right? Happy 4th. You don't say 4th of July. Yeah, it's tomorrow. But I think but you just say happy. Happy 4th of July, I would say. Yeah, you don't say happy America Day. No, no, we don't no. say happy America Day. <laughs> All right, Jesse, good to see you, my man. All right, talk to you later. All right, that is it for the podcast. Special thanks to Jesse. Special thanks to rickrungood.com. Happy 4th of July. And we will be back next week for the Genesis Scottish Open. Until then, best of luck with your bets this weekend. And we will see you next time. Cheers. If I ventured in the slipstream between the viaducts of your dream Where my world still runs crack And the dead shed the back roads stop